This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Thank you very much, Pedro, and uh, good evening and welcome to uh, all of you. It's a pleasure to uh, have you. Um, as, as Pedro said, so many old friends, this is uh, truly uh, terrific. Uh, my uh, topic this evening is to try to answer the question, when to intervene in asymptomatic aortic regurgitation in children and young adults? And um, what is... Uh, my plan is to discuss uh, a little bit the natural history of chronic aortic regurgitation, the pathophysiology of left ventricular failure in aortic regurgitation, which is what we are trying to avoid, uh, how to predict uh, that outcome, and then to end up with some recommendations on uh, when to intervene in these patients. So as a way of background, uh, severe chronic aortic regurgitation uh, can be tolerated for many years, but ultimately uh, it catches up with our patients and patients then become uh, symptomatic, mostly developing symptoms of heart failure um, and uh, the disease leads to uh, premature death. And, but uh, timely aortic valve replacement or repair, as uh, we'll discuss uh, later in this symposium, results in uh, symptomatic improvement and reduced mortality. So in order to try to answer the question, when is best to uh, do surgical intervention on uh, severe chronic aortic regurgitation in an asymptomatic child, uh, we need to understand the natural history and pathophysiology of the disease. So let me get one thing out of the way, and that is symptomatic patients with severe chronic aortic regurgitation um, they usually exhibit symptoms of angina, dyspnea, and heart failure. And without surgery, these patients have uh, an annual mortality rate that exceeds 10%. Medical therapy is not the solution. They do not respond to medical therapy. And when patients with severe chronic AR do have symptoms, this is a class uh, one indication for valve replacement or repair. So uh, we are going to focus most of the talk on patients who are asymptomatic and have a severe chronic aortic regurgitation. Let's begin with what we know from adults because the vast majority of information in this area comes um, from adult patients. Uh, even in adults, there are no truly large-scale studies, uh, surprisingly enough. And what I was able to identify are 13 published series involving a total of 1,250 patients with a mean follow-up of about 6.6 .6 years. Uh, turns out that sudden death is very unusual in this patient population. However, if you leave these patients uh, without intervening on their uh, aortic regurgitation and uh, either uh, with or without medical treatment, they will develop heart failure uh, symptoms 
and they will have a premature death. And the annual rate of developing these complications is about four to six uh, per year. And you can see this in, uh, in these Kaplan-Meier graphs. Uh, you can see here uh, mortality in a, one of the largest series of adults with severe chronic chaotic regurgitation here stratified by uh, New York Heart Association at presentation. So this just confirms that patients who are symptomatic have very poor outcome. And uh, here is patients stratified by left ventricular ejection fraction. And of course, those who uh, have depressed LV systolic function measured as ejection fraction uh, have a very poor outcome, as this study showed. What is important to recognize is that uh, severe chronic chaotic regurgitation, even in asymptomatic patients, leads to irreversible myocardial injury, even prior to onset of symptoms. So uh, what we actually do in practice, or what adult cardiologists do in practice, and we do the, the same in pediatric cardiology, is to follow these patients serially uh, in order to try to identify, if you will, the sweet spot uh, when they uh, are starting to exhibit some kind of deterioration in either left ventricular uh, size or function, but before they develop irreversible damage to the myocardium. So let's spend about uh, two minutes or three minutes just on that. Let's define what uh, stress means because it's a key concept uh, in understanding uh, how patients go from uh, compensated to decompensated disease process. Stress is defined as the force per unit of cross-sectional area and we make a distinction between fiber stress which is a stress on individual myofibers, which we cannot really measure in, uh, in vivo, uh, and ventricular wall stress, which is the total uh, stress on the myocardial wall, which is something that um, there are some ways of uh, getting an approximate assessment of that. And the key here is the law of Laplace, which states that wall stress is proportional to the pressure uh, times the radius divided by wall thickness. So what we'll see is that if the, if the wall thickness become uh, thin relative to the diameter, wall stress would increase. Similarly, if pressure goes up or the radius or volume goes up, then wall stress will go up as well. So what we're trying to do here is distinguish not between normal, which you can see right here, uh, but between compensated and decompensated severe chronic chaotic regurgitation. And the key here is that with uh, volume load and there's some degree of pressure load from severe chronic AR that the chamber dilates, there's, an F, the, the, there's compensatory mechanisms that attempt to normalize wall stress, but eventually these mechanisms fail. So let's follow that, um, which is uh, what I tried to do in this slide. We start out with chronic chaotic regurgitation, which leads to mostly volume load, but some pressure load, uh, and that leads to uh, eccentric hypertrophy characterized by increased myofiber length as well as width. 
that eccentric hypertrophy would then lead to normalization of um, wall stress, both in at end diastole and at systole, but with continued uh, volume load from the AR, you'll get this chronic stage of compen compensated uh, state until uh, that compensatory mechanism will fail, and it will fail over time. When it fails, you get into a cascade of events that starts with inadequate hypertrophy, afterload mismatch. At this stage, left ventricular ejection fraction, if you measure it, it's still normal, as is myocardial uh, uh, Emax, which is a surrogate of contractility. However, eventually, preload recruitment, which is one of the mechanisms to compensate uh, for this condition, will eventually also be exhausted, leading to decreased mass-to-volume ratio, increased wall stress, decreasing contractility, leading to decreasing ejection fraction. That's when you will start seeing ejection fraction going down. At this stage, still the disease process is reversible. However, the window of opportunity for reversibility is now closing, and if nothing is done and the aortic valve is not prepared, then the patient will develop irreversible myocardial damage, symptoms, and death. And what we are trying to do here is to identify that time period where the patient still uh, will not suffer irreversible myocardial damage. So the literature in adults has identified preoperative LV ejection fraction, a, a very gross uh, or crude marker of global uh, systolic function, as well as n-systolic volume, either diameter or volume, as the most important predictors or in determinants of survival after aortic valve replacement or repair, mostly what adults have been doing and the data is based on replacement, uh, but one would assume that it can be extrapolated to repair. So if aortic valve replacement or repair is done within about 14 to 18 months after the onset of LV dysfunction, uh, one would anticipate complete recovery. This is quite old data, uh, but nonetheless, it's the best that we have. Uh, and it turns out just worth keeping in mind that indices of uh, aortic regurgitation, uh, the various measurements of aortic regurgitation are not predictive of outcomes. So this, these are the indications. This is the uh, guidelines, the uh, heart valve guidelines uh, published by the American uh, Heart Association, American College of Cardiology. Uh, last uh, version is from 2014. And the uh, distinction here is between symptomatic and asymptomatic patient. And the third category are patients who are getting other type of cardiac surgery. So these are all patients with aortic regurgitation, and just to make it a little bit easier to read, you can see that patients who are symptomatic, that's class one. Also, patients who are asymptomatic but have LV dysfunction, in the adults that's um, categorized as ejection fraction less than 50, they are also class one indication for aortic valve replacement. However, asymptomatic patients with normal 
LV ejection fraction, but with LV and systolic size greater than five centimeters or 25 uh, millimeters per meter square are considered class two indication for aortic valve replacement. So what do we know about this topic in uh, children? Well, it turns out that one thing to keep in mind that children are not small adults and adult data cannot be easily extrapolated uh, to children. There's paucity of data to support recommendation. One thing that characterizes uh, our patients is that they have many decades of uh, life ahead of them. So uh, the same considerations that apply to a 70-year-old uh, person is not the same as you would apply to a seven-year-old uh, person. Uh, Many of our patients with severe aortic regurgitation also have other uh, associated congenital heart disease, oftentimes multiple left heart uh, lesions. Uh, and then the threshold for uh, values for LV size and function must be adjusted to body size. We cannot use adult criteria when we are talking about young children with uh, varied uh, body size. And body size, grows in a non-linear fashion. It's heteroscedastic, and the best adjustment is uh, by uh, using ziscos. What's heteroscedastic? Well, it's that variance in the data that you see in the normal population. Uh, and again, the best way to adjust for that is by using ziscos. So, these are uh, the uh, four studies that um, I was able to identify that try to answer the question, what preoperative parameters predict post-aortic valve repair or replacement uh, that uh, patients then are left with uh, left ventricular dysfunction after surgery? And they all identified some combination of decreased systolic function preoperatively and increased in end-systolic size before surgery. And you can see some, some variability of the threshold, but there is a consistent story here. So um, what are recommendations based on the available data is that, of course, if a patient has severe chronic aortic regurgitation and symptoms, uh, then this is an indication for surgery. In patients who are asymptomatic, end systolic dimension Z score greater than 4.5 standard deviation above the uh, population means, or LV ejection fraction Z score less than minus 2 or, 50, or 55%, or a declining left ventricular ejection fractions or short end Z scores that gets the patient to below minus uh, 1. Uh, might be considered an indication. And uh, even in the adult uh, population nowadays, uh, they're starting to use size and diastolic, either diameter or volume. And what oftentimes we do in clinical practice is we look at progressive left ventricular dilatation. 
the, what is the exact threshold that uh, trips the wire for surgical intervention is unclear. And uh, if you look at the adult guidelines, you're talking about a Z-score greater than four, uh, but we typically would use a somewhat higher Z-score, and I'm listing uh, greater than five and a half. Important before, before aortic valve replacement or repair to confirm the measurements uh, with a, either a second echo or MRI within one to three months. We would rarely go by a single measurement. And to consider exercise testing because not, when uh, self-reporting of lack of uh, symptoms does not always go hand in hand with objective data. So I will stop here and uh, we'll have some, uh, we'll answer some questions uh, later on. Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.